right. Thank you. Now, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can go ahead and turn to to Titus chapter 3. I mentioned that before. And uh, Josh is going to read our passage today. Thank you, elders, for leading us um, in prayer. If you don't have a copy, it's going to be on the screen in front of you. Uh, And then also I want to say to those of you who are guests here today, uh, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. If you fill it out and put it in the gift boxes to the right and to the left uh, of the doors on their way out, we'll contact you in a respectful way. Titus 3, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, brother. All right, let's, let's uh, pray again and ask the Lord to use this time in His word. Lord, thank you for your word today, and I pray that this reminder of the gospel, of the truth, of what you've accomplished for everyone who believes, would strengthen us, that you would restore us through it. We bring all of our hopes and expectations before you, Lord, and say, Lord, we know that only you can solve the riddles of our life. You're our only hope, and I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things uh, I love... And this is where shows will always get me, and Instagram will always get me, is a good before and after picture of some project, or some before and after picture of something that's not yet finished, right? This is how far you are. I love these things, and one of the biggest mistakes that I've made is not taking before pictures of our own house, for which we're in the middle of continuing the work of like finishing this this house that we moved into a couple years ago. And maybe at some points, if we were able to look back and say, okay, look at how far we've come, it would motivate us to keep on going. And I want to ask the question before we launch into this passage, what difference does it make that God is alive, that he's real? What difference does it make that you believe what you believe today? And just a reminder from last week, Paul was, had left Titus in this place called Crete, And he had continued to tell him, look, I've left you here so that you would set what remains in order. There's things that are not yet accomplished that I've left you in this place to do. I want you to continue the work that I left you there for. And last week at the beginning of this chapter, he says, I want you to remind them and insist on these things. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind them not to be foolish, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Remind them not to speak evil of anyone, slanderous words. Avoid, remind them not to quarrel, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And it appears that in this specific context that Titus has his work cut out for him, okay? Either because this group of people are just exceptionally rude and they do not want to listen to him, or because he is... Uh, he needed to be exceptionally strong in his correction. Maybe he's just a docile guy that's not the one that's going to know. I'm going to insist that you do this. 
So over and over throughout the book of Titus, Paul is telling Titus, I need you to insist on these things. Do not relent. And what he's leading them to be reminded of, he's saying, look, there's ways that you've been out of step with the doctrine that you're holding on to. There's things that you believe that haven't functionally worked themselves out into your behavior. And it's important what Titus is calling them to and from to not lose sight of this bigger truth of what God and the gospel had already accomplished in their lives. Specifically, and Paul and Titus and the leaders of this church, it's important that as they're calling people away from uh, ungodliness into righteousness, that they remember the bigger story of what God has called them out of and into. Because the foundation of all Christian living, okay, hang tune back in. The foundation of all Christian living is this, the gospel. It's not some external code, but the beauty and the grace of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. So the way that we make progress in the Christian life isn't different from the way that we all start out in this Christian life. The testimony of our faith from the very beginning, what God has snatched us out of, is the foundation for everything else. Everything underneath the whole of the Christian life is the gospel of what He's done, okay? So, what difference has it made? We have to come back to this picture because the gospel is not just the past of what God has redeemed us from and the future of redemption of what he's called us to, but it is our only hope in this present moment when huge things are going on around us, when the world feels like it's crumbling, when it feels like our lives resemble where we've been rather than where we're going. In all of those spaces, our hope is the same as where we began. The bottom line today is this. The ongoing transformation of our lives is fueled by remembering and rejoicing in God's transforming work in us. So he's going to call them to remember a few things. Remember this kind of remembering that fuels our transformation is this. Remember who we once were. Remember when God appeared to us and remember God's salvation. And this list of things that, God, that Titus is going to have to go back and correct The underneath of all of it is the truth of the gospel, what he's rescued them from and what he's rescuing them to. So let's go back to verse 3, and I want to read it and then ask the question, what are they first being reminded of? Verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So the first thing he's reminding them of is not who they are present, but who they have been in the past. Paul, Titus, the elders who they would appoint, all of them, we ourselves, are included in this collection. Even those who would lead and stand before them and call them to this reckoning of who they might be becoming, they're standing first on a level ground. That means that ministerial staff, Josh, who we just appointed as an elder, every person who oversees anything in the life of the church first stands on level ground with everyone else in our redemption. In all of these places, he's saying, we ourselves, as Paul and Titus, here in this room, we've been called from something. We all have a similar history. And the way that we move forward is by remembering this. Each person uh, this week, as we look at at the elections that are going to happen this week, I remember Casey's grandmother used to say, if you want to remember everything you wish you could forget, then run for public office, okay? (laughs) And each person who will be appointed to any role, they're one among us. 
The same thing is true within the church. Every person in this room starts with the same need. Level ground. We all have been rescued by God. And the only way that we'll be continued to be marked by this reality is that we remember and rehearse what have we been saved from. That also informs the way that we correct and interact with one another. We don't correct one another with this kind of condescension where, well, look at how their lives are so messed up. Every person in this room has the first beginning. So remember, ponder for a moment where you were when you met Jesus and if he had not intervened where you would be today. Now, some people in this room, maybe the transition is not that dramatic for you. You just were raised around Christendom and you knew all the things and you knew what a life should look like because you were surrounded by good people. Maybe you didn't get rescued out of an addiction or rescued from death physically. But wherever you've been rescued from, whether it be your own self-righteousness or your own unrighteousness, your own religion or rebellion, there's level ground in this place. And so I want us to go back and go through this list. Who were we before Christ? Everyone in the same boat. Number one, once we were fools. Foolish. Now, the Bible says that a fool is anyone who denies God's existence and says in his heart, there is no God. Now, maybe you've never been in a place where you would have said, there is no God. But there's lots of ways that we're functional atheists, practical atheists, where we live in such a way as if God doesn't exist. The common foolishness in our culture, and in almost every culture, starts with this idea that God will not be present, that he is not concerned, that he's somewhere else, that he's not here. This is what the before picture looks like for every person. Either an ignorance or unawareness or denial that God himself exists. Next thing he says is that you're disobedient. These people, maybe they acknowledge that there is some rule over our lives, but we choose to rebel against it and say, I do not have to obey God's rule over my life. I'm not denying that he exists. I'm denying that he has order over me. Now, if you had any trouble coming up with a time that you were foolish, there's probably no trouble coming up with a time in your life where you were disobedient. And in this, we're both responsible for our sins. And then he moves on. We're also victims of sin in the world. We've been led astray. In other words, there's ways in which other people have brought us or our own passions and desires have led us away from God. Now, each of the reminders too, I just want to point this out, that the reminders that are in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 are parallel in verses 3 of this chapter. He says, I want to remind you, to be ready for every good work. And there's this picture of being steadfast and ready to take on whatever God would call you to. And now the contrast of that is before Christ, we were easily led astray. We were listless. Anybody could say, this is the way. And we'd say, I guess so. Remember that. Last memory of before Christ, we were enslaved to various passions and pleasures. In other words, we followed our appetites. They ruled over us for food, sex, power, control, comfort, amusement. All of these things were our God. Enslaved, perhaps to the things that give us some identity that we'd be okay. Maybe in this room, you feel some of those enslavements still. Here's the, the beauty of being reminded of what God has saved us from, and the ways that we pick up our old slavery. He's saying, hey, I want you to remember what I saved you from. 
when you pick up your phone and try to numb yourself with it. Remind yourself of what you've been saved from. And then it goes on to our relationships with others. Last week he said, I don't want you to slander anybody. Don't speak evil of anyone. Be perfectly courteous. Now in contrast, remember who you were. You were once full of malice and envy. You hated and were hating others. You were hated and hating others. I'm going to walk through that list really quickly, okay? Malice just means that you cannot rejoice when other people rejoice, okay? You want bad things to happen when they're happening to others. You like that. Malice means that you have great joy when someone else is having great good. Envy means that you have great sadness when other people have something good. Now here's here's the beauty of what God has transitioned us from and to. Instead of rejoicing when others weep, Jesus calls us and makes us his own and now we weep with others who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice instead of laughing when other people weep or being sad when other people rejoice. And this is another way that that he's transitioned our lives from being hateful and hated to being loving. Luke in chapter 6, when he's going through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also from which one takes away your cloak. Do not withhold your tunic either. So here's the before picture. You were taking, you were full of malice and envy. You didn't want good things to happen to other people. You wanted bad things to happen to people you didn't like. And now God has transitioned us to light, to love. We have to remember for a couple reasons. Number one, that we don't drift back into who we once were because there's a downward pull into the previous life that God's rescued you from. We have to remember that God's rescued us from these things because we have to, the only way forward is to see that God himself is the one who did it. Imagine for a moment, uh, again, where you would be if it were not God's intervention in your life when it comes to your relationships with others. Not just foolishness or being led astray, But imagine how God has redefined the way that you interact with other people. He's transformed us that belong to him. And he's continuing to transform us. And the transformation looks like foolishness being turned into God awareness. Disobedience being turned into surrender. From being led astray to being ready to do every good work. From being enslaved to being free from the passions and and appetites of our flesh from relational strife into forgiveness and love. Any person who's been released from these things by God's power will continue to grow in these things by God's power. We remember, not with disdain, not trying to forget all the things, but we remember with fondness how God has come and taken us away from all of these things and transferred into himself been translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. For those who know Jesus in this room, it started with some newfound awareness that God could love you in spite of yourself. And in that testimony, you remember God's goodness. That's the next thing he says in verse four. Look at this verse with us. But when God's goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, we first remember how he was be acting towards us when he saved us. These are not new traits for God, okay? It wasn't like he was keeping these things withheld when they appeared in Jesus Christ. 
This is the substance of who God is, the nature that He's good and He's kind, that He's loving, and He holds these characteristics for all of eternity. He doesn't just act in ways that demonstrate these characteristics. This is who He is. And in this this history of how God has stepped into creation in the incarnation, He became the visible representation of these characteristics in Jesus Christ. More and more clearly demonstrating the reality of these traits of who God is. And when we take refuge in Him, we can see that this is His characteristics. Chapter uh, 31 of the Psalms. He says this, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and who work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In other words, there's this great bastion. He's not stingy with his goodness. For everyone who comes to him, he has a great reservoir of his kindness and loving and his goodness towards us. We don't presume upon this kind of kindness either. In Romans chapter 2, it says that, that his kindness is what leads us to repentance. And he's correcting in Romans chapter 2 people that would somehow point to others and say, look at how uh, you're offending God's goodness and holiness. And be careful not to condescend to those around you because the only reason that you would know God's goodness and mercy is that he's been kind towards you and it led you to repentance. It's these things that leads us through the door of repentance. Do you know these traits of who God is? Do you have specific stories of how he's shown his loving kindness and goodness towards you? How do you know this? Look at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Third thing in this passage, he's calling us to remember to recount what God has done for us. He saved us. This means that the repercussions of the life that we had before needed to be saved, rescued. So what's he saved us from? Not only the physical consequences of where that lifestyle would have led us, but the spiritual consequences. He saved us from ourselves and he saved us from the spiritual consequences of us rebelling against God's rule and order in our lives. Here's the question I want you guys to just ponder for a moment. Is God willing to punish sin? Is he just? Is God willing to punish those who would rebel against him? The answer to that question is yes. But for everyone who believes, there's this but Christ and his mercy that's come into this world in order to save those who would come and be rescued by him. And for us, we come back to this reality over and over and over. Why has he saved us? It wasn't because of how good we begged. It was because of his mercy. It's because of his mercy that any person in this room would have been rescued by him. There's a couple of ways that we might diminish God's mercy. I want to name them for you, okay? First is to be a moralist. In other words, you have an inflated sense of how good you are before God. It's not a big deal that he would rescue you because you're actually pretty good. You're a pretty good guy. 
Maybe it's because you belong to a church or you belong to a family that was, you were born into. And I'm grateful for the families in this room that will teach their kids about Christ. Or maybe at some point you felt your need and you just repented on your own and you thought, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be this bad kind of person because it leads to bad things. Lots of good things that maybe come to your mind. So when you ask the question, why has God saved me? If there's a list of reasons that he saved you that have to do with the good things that you've done, that's because you're a moralist. Maybe a mission trip or serving with kids. Listen, there's a lot of things that should be honored and celebrated in the body of Christ. But they're not reasons that God has saved you. So one way that we could diminish God's mercy is to think, of our, think very highly of ourselves. The other way to diminish God's mercy is to lower our view of God's justice or to be a universalist. These people have a deflated view or sense of God's justice in the world. They, they believe that maybe eventually God will accept everybody, no matter what they believe, that he's, he's the kind of judge, but not the kind of judge that would actually judge people. Okay? And both of these views, either a high view of ourself or a low view of God's justice, diminish the mercy that's been poured out through Jesus Christ. And we will not think of our salvation as a big deal if we think higher of ourselves than we ought or lower of God than we ought. Either way, in the middle of that, you sit on the throne. You sit on the throne as the judge over your life if you think higher of yourself or lower of God. Or maybe God sits on the throne, but he's kind of an amused grandparent. It's like, isn't that cute? so impressed with you or dismissive of your sin. Either way, it will diminish our awe and reverence of God's mercy towards us. Listen, the Bible says that our very best efforts are like filthy rags to him. He's not impressed with our very best efforts. He's in the heavens and he will do as he pleases. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Now, the only reason that we could get excited about God as judge is if we know the reality of his mercy and they go hand in hand. Why do you believe that you're going to be saved? If there's any answer other than the mercy of Christ, then it's the wrong answer. Those are terrible false assurances that we would cling to, us being good enough or not as bad as others, or believing that God is indifferent towards sin. We're saved on the foundation of these character traits of God. His loving kindness, His goodness, His mercy. He delights to show mercy. Someone in a sermon years ago used this illustration, and I borrow it from them. That I want you to imagine for a moment, okay, that someone assassinated someone of great power in our country. They came before the Supreme Court for treason, and they said, we want to raise up our hand and vow that we will never do it again. Never, ever, ever. We promise. And they said, do you promise? And they're like, we promise. And the Supreme Court dismissed their case. Now that would say a couple of things about the court of our land and about the value on that leader. It would diminish the value and it would diminish the justice of the court. But it's not so in the courtroom of God's throne room. He ultimately paid the penalty that every person deserved through the only perfect sacrifice that's ever lived, Jesus Christ. 
He demonstrates His mercy towards us and His perfect justice towards us in that if we believe every bit of the wrath that we deserve was poured out on Christ. And so for us, when we sing about the goodness of God, it means something amazing and awe-inspiring to us because we have not diminished what He came to do towards us or our need And we have not diminished His justice. We've exalted both of those things when we celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. Is God just or merciful is not a question that we have to answer. He is both of those things. He's both. Ultimately demonstrated in the cross of Christ. The heart of the Father, both merciful and good and kind. And the justice of the Father giving to us through the Holy Spirit regeneration and the washing and renewal of the Spirit through Christ. And then he walks through the Trinity in this passage. First, the heart of the Father, that he's both good and merciful and kind. And then the work of the Spirit to reconcile us through the work of the Son. The work of the Spirit. There was an artist friend uh, that I was emailing with this week that was invited to do an art exhibit at a church in this country uh, on uh, Lazarus. And he was describing his art and what he walked through in this art exhibit. He said, first, the calling voice that made the heart beat again, that made the cold blood warm again, the call that pushed oxygen back into the dry lungs again, that made eyes open, the call that made the dead man walk again out of the darkness and death of a tomb into the light of a new day. It's a beautiful description. I can only imagine what the pictures looked like of each of those things. That's the picture of regeneration for everyone who believes. That there was a cold, dead heart spiritually, and God brought it back to life. His resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead raised us spiritually from death to life. And it all was given to us, not because of our deserving, but because of the work of the Son. That He paid the penalty of our debt. That we were sentenced, but he paid the fine. Jesus died in our place for our sins in order that we might receive this free gift. And the result of this work is now we've been made right with God, justified, but that gets into next week. The charges that were indeed guilty for every person, sins that we've committed and refused to and omitted, the things that we refuse to do and the things that we've done against God's will. And every bit, every part of that guilt was placed on Jesus so that every part of this gift of life could be placed on us. And this reality of our standing before God, it changes everything else. It changes us from fools into those that would be wise. We don't act as if there is no God. We know that there is a God. We're not disobedient. We're no longer slaves to the passions of our flesh. We're being transformed by the Holy Spirit. We're not defined by what we have or haven't done, but we're defined by what God has done for us. So why has God saved us? It's because of his mercy. And this is the gospel story. And I want to ask this question in closing, okay? Is this gospel the story that you are living? Present tense. Because there's a lot of stories. Stories about how you can change, about how you can pursue success. Stories about your attempts to get it right. Well-intentioned attempts to get it right. But if we're not continuing in the truth of how we've been redeemed from the first place, it's going to be a botched attempt. 
one of my favorite stories, uh, and I've used this story before, so if you've been here for a while, I'm sorry. There's this chapel in Spain, okay, where there was an image of Jesus, a fresco image. It's going to be on the screen. And this fresco image was decaying, and there was this, uh, there was someone who, uh, an 80-year-old woman in the congregation decided that she would try to restore the image on her own, okay? And this is what it looked like. Um, yeah, I know. There were the officials in that town were like, we're looking for the person who's defaced the face of Jesus in this place. And in this, in this passage where Titus is being urged to help people to see how can we live out this truth that we believe, if we try any other way than the way that we got into this, it's going to be a botched restoration. It's going to, it's going to be limited by our own image, by our own imagination. It's going to be limited by our own power. And I'm going to tell you something. You didn't get into this faith because of your power or your will. You don't progress in the Christian faith because of your power or your will. It's the same way. The reason that you need to be reminded of these things is there's constantly this pull towards who you once were. But there's an even more compelling power and pull towards what Christ is restoring in you. And this is the great before and after of every Christian, that you once were dead and he's made you alive. And it's the way that we progress. Now, if you don't know Christ, and if you evaluate your life, it, honestly, every person who does not know Jesus, it looks very similar to this before picture. The before picture being uh, uh, there's a gap between where you're at and what God might do with you. Foolish, disobedient, slaves to your own passions and desires. And you feel powerless in it. And what I want you to know is that the gospel offers you a, an incredible hope of being who God had designed you to be. An incredible hope of being completely transformed, not because of your effort, but because of his mercy. Every attempt that you might make to do it on your own will just diminish where you're at. And for those of you who are maybe still slaves, I want you to know that God is still merciful. That's still who he is. He's still good and loving kindness still is being displayed today. And that story, for those who do believe, is not just for the beginning it's not just what defines our past that we've been forgiven. And it's not just what defines our future. This is what gives us power in the present. We remember what God has done and we continue to rehearse those things one another to one another. And every opportunity we have, we remind ourselves, once I was dead in the trespasses and the sins of my flesh. I once walked in them. And some of you are coming in going, I kind of still do. I hope I won't, but I kind of still do. The way that forward is the way that God has brought you to this place by his grace and by his power. And he's the only one who ultimately can transform you. Maybe you come into this room needing hope today, feeling like your best efforts have kind of led you to some place where you've become a botched art project. I just want to remind you again of the passage that we started with, and I want to close with it from Ephesians. Every person in this room 
first to last, leaders to followers, team leaders, every person who's trusting in Jesus. This is our story. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We all once lived. Every person in here, level ground. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were enemies. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This good news of the gospel is not just what defines our past and future. It is for today. This is the power that we have, that he's redefined our past and our future, and he gives us hope in this moment, so that when other people look at our lives, they would see the incredible, unmeasurable riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. That our lives would be this testimony and trophies of God's grace that we'd look back and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not denying who I once was. I'm not denying who I am now. I can see God's power at work today in the same ways he displayed his power to save me and rescue me. Let's pray this uh, and to this end, that we'd be a people, not just reminded of the gospel, but living in its power from day to day. Would you pray that with me? Father, thank you for this, your word. And I pray that today you'd take the meager words of a man and you'd transform them by the power of your Holy Spirit. For those that do not yet know you, I pray that they would come to know you. For those that do not know your mercy and grace, Father, I pray that you would rescue and redeem. For those that maybe are far from you, seeking to deny your existence either practically or cognitively, for those that are disobedient to your rule, I pray that you'd call them out. You'd show them the consequences, not just in life, but spiritual consequences of these things. And that you'd rescue us from ourselves, Lord. Today, as we uh, think about people who are leaders in the church and specifically think about Titus and how he was called to call out people, pray that in that moment of faithfulness, none of us would see ourselves as those who are somehow above anyone else, but as peers, all in mutual need of your rescue and mutual need of your grace. Father, I pray that you would demonstrate your love and kindness again today, that our only hope would be you, that you'd reconcile ourselves to this truth, that our only hope is you, Jesus. Wherever it's drifted onto, be it something we could do, something we could avoid. I pray that you would replace it in the work that you've accomplished. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.